Hey, welcome, Docolo. It's me, Bob Sham, the host of this here podcast, the greatest documentary themed podcast in the universe. Fact! Herzog Month rolls on, and things get a little less glib and a little more curious for this week's episode because Werner and a skeleton crew of film production folk go to the Chevette Cave in southern France, where in 1933 some archaeologists discovered a 32,000 year old cave painting. Many of them, actually, the oldest known cave drawings in the whole wide world. Today, it's all about me and Ginger and Werner's 2010 doc, Cave of Forgotten Dreams. Do they find the dreams or do they forget they found the dreams? Watch the doc or listen forward to find out. Next week, we have one last Herzog film to discuss before Creeptober October begins. The final day of September features an Angelus selection that is a truly deep cut in the Werner Herzog lexicon. And let me tell you, we have yet to find an official English translation of this film, so this might get interesting because we watched a 1971 documentary that Werner made for German television about the lives of disabled children in Germany at that time. It's called Behindert Zukunft. English translation would be Handicap Future. Several children featured lacked arms due to a generation of European mothers being prescribed thalidomide for pregnancy sickness. We barely know what the hell they're saying. Be lost in translation with us next week right here on The Documenteers. The snippiest of music snippets you will hear in this episode are the Poldark theme. Poldark, the British procedural show. Honestly, I learned about it for the first time here on this episode from Ginger. Also, we hear a little something of the classic single by Andy Gibb known as Shadow Dancing. It plays into what we're talking about mr gibb just might play us out documenteers podcast.com <laughs> documenteers podcast.com for contact information soundcloud links and a list of properly judged documentaries we need five stars and some fun reviews especially on apple podcast which i believe is still the biggest podcast directory out there we'll take them anywhere really if you uh, have spotify we could use some reviews there as well i mean but Apple, didn't they invent putting the word pod in front of other words? Do that on there. And it increases the likelihood of us getting randomly seen. And right now, that is more important to us than the money in your pocket. Give us five stars and a shout out if you're down with the clown. Juggalo's welcome. I might send a shirtless photo of Drew to anyone henceforth that does so. Haven't gotten his approval yet, but let's face it, folks. Drew's just a piece of meat to gawk at and he fucking knows it. Not sure where this is going. Let's go instead to this episode. Cave of Forgotten Dreams. Keep on docking. Here is a motion picture film. A thousand feet. 16,000 separate photographs. Let's tidy up this tangle of film by putting it on a reel. This is the Ardèche River in southern France. Less than a quarter of a mile from here, three explorers set out a few days before Christmas in 1994. They came along this way. They were seeking drafts of air emanating from the ground, which would point to the presence of caves. Eventually, they sensed a subtle airflow and began clearing away rocks, revealing a narrow shaft into the cliff. It was so narrow that a person could barely squeeze through it. They descended into the unknown. 
they were about to make one of the greatest discoveries in the history of human culture. I think we are good. Good. Oh, man. Herzog Month rolls on the second annual. Ginger, you're here. I'm here. There's a lot of you this month. We're hearing you every Friday with our shorties. Yeah, hope you guys don't get sick of me. Well, they can just go throw up on their dicks if they got a problem yeah. with it. Yeah, that's what I always say. <laughs> okay, you got a problem. You know that old, <laughs> <laughs> that old folksy saying, go throw up on your dick? Uh-huh. Classic. My grandma used to say it. Um, oh. We're talking about, this is modern era Herzog, uh, contemporary Herzog. This is, I consider... 21st century Herzog, where he's getting into the nature of things, the humanity of things a lot more, which is a common theme throughout a lot of his work. But in this jazz, in this mess, Werner goes back quite a bit to something that's pretty fascinating. He goes back 35,000 or more years. Now, I remember hearing about when this was discovered. And I also remember hearing about when this movie came out. I maybe wasn't as up on the Herzog Kool-Aid and when I heard... Werner was going to do a 3D movie about a cave. I maybe was just at that time. What? This came out in 2010. Maybe you were living in a cave. Yeah, I was living in an emotional cave uh-huh. in a bubble where I was just high or drunk and being like, who wants to watch that, right? Me. I wanted to watch it. So I went to see it in a theater in 3D. In 3D. Uh-huh. You know what? The, the only 3D, pure 3D movie I ever seen was Jackass 3D. Oh, I didn't catch that one. I mean, it's kind of on par with this film we're about to talk about, I think. I think there is some ancient jackassery going on. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I might have some controversial opinions about the artist. You know what I'm saying? Okay, I, I can't wait to hear about that. Going back into France. You figure the oldest cave paintings would be by some artistic French snob, obviously, mm-hmm. lording it over the other Paleolithic cave people. With like a beret made out of a leaf or something? Oh, God. I don't like the artsy-fartsy thing. Rhino Tusk Baguette. The original elitist, maybe. Uh-huh. Look at my panther eyes. <laughs> don't they have life? Ginger, we're talking about the film. You selected it. It was your choice. I did. Cave of Forgotten Dreams. Cave of Forgotten Dreams. Hey, can you do an effect where we sound like we're in a cave? Okay, okay, okay. Oh, oh. I will... Forgotten. I will try. Should I leave it on through the whole? Yeah, oh, with I like for- little water drops and like, yeah. I forgot to mention that we're recording in a cave. Mm-hmm. I totally forgot to mention that. Just in Bobby's this- emotional cave. That's where we're recording. And, uh, <laughs> and it's there's a lot of stalagmites, stalactites. Do you know my sixth grade teacher told me an interesting way of remembering which is which. She said, if the mites go up, the tights Come down. Whoa. Yeah. So that, that has stuck with me for two years because I said sixth grade. So that was just a couple of years ago, of course. The only right. cave drawings in my emotional cave are just like childish, like dick drawings mm-hmm. where you can tell that they really concentrated on the amount of pubic hairs on the balls. Just too much. Sounds magical. <laughs> <laughs> we go along the Ardèche River. Well, first we see an orchard. It looks like a wine orchard mm-hmm. that is dried out spring is starting and we go along the ardeche river in southern france i've always wanted to go to southern france me too maybe like toulouse something like that 
Yeah. Of the nice countrysides out there. We should all take a journey. A journey to uh, southern France. I want to go to those regions of France where they won't even humor my Americanness and will just like not sell me uh, smoked meats and breads. They will not have it. You must say it the way I say it. <laughs> In 1994, explorers on Christmas... Merry Christmas. Mm. Uh, discover a cave that was previously unfounded. They managed, as they were going along, this, I guess, this sheer cliff rock area, there was a bit of a breeze coming out. It seemed just random that they d- had discovered this. They could feel a little breeze coming through. And when you encounter that, that usually means that there's a cave somewhere. I don't think they dropped the names of the explorers until the end. Right. I don't think they did. They may not mention the... The one guy that it was named after. Jean-Marie Chevet? Yeah, I think so. Like, Yeah, in the very beginning they mentioned it. And Elliot Brunel and Christian Hilaire. Those are the people who discovered the Chevet cave. And so they pop into this thing, and they're brave men going in. They don't know what's going on. This shit could flood out for all they know. Who mm-hmm. knows? And when they enter this building, they have to kind of move some stuff aside. They can tell maybe some rubble or some brush. And they squeeze into a narrow gap. And when they go into this thing, they discover cave drawings. And the thing about these cave drawings is it look it looks like from our eyes, the way we see them, as if they were drawn like 20 minutes ago. Yep. Totally. They are pristine and well-crafted and show representations of a lot of creatures that have been long extinct in this region of Europe. At first, the cave did not appear to contain anything special aside from being particularly beautiful. But then, deep inside, they found this. They came across these drawings. Yeah, it just opened up into like a space where it just covered in these like amazing drawings. And the space, the cave has been perfectly sealed for at least 32,000 years doing perfect preservation on the markings here and everything when they discovered this they took it so seriously so much shit from like animal remains to torch markings and everything has been set up to be no one touched this please there's some parts of this cave where it's very limited the types of people that they allow into this cave and on this cave wall are things like horses elks mm-hmm. rhinoceroses in southern france mm-hmm. panthers lions european lions yep. bears mammoths good old what's your favorite extinct animal the woolly rhino oh can you cool. imagine how adorable that would be yeah that'd be I rad mean, mine yeah. is the giant sloth uh oh, common gosh. in argentina yeah i was in the field museum in chicago not too long ago they have a giant sloth skeleton how giant is it it's uh like two stories tall. What? Yeah, standing. Oh my gosh. It was, uh, or maybe just under, it was very exciting for me. That is very exciting. I mean, yeah, that's that's right up there. Film Museum, I, I recommend it. T-Rex, skeletons, dinosaur skeletons, it's cool mm. shit. Okay. Now, Werner and a camera crew, but only four people are allowed in here. And they, and this is unprecedented access. I think this is the first time a proper film crew has been allowed in. I think all yeah. other documentations have been by... First and last, I think. This cave is like Bonerville for geologists and archaeologists. 
Bonertown, USA. Yeah. Or Bonertown, France. That's what the archaeologists call the Chevette Cave amongst themselves. Let's mm-hmm. go to let's go down to Bonertown, France. Mm-hmm. And then everyone gets real jazzed and pumped up. The entrance now is locked by a steel door to preserve um, the environment in there the best they can. Yeah, at some point there was another entrance and there was a landslide and it got blocked. You can see it from the inside of the cave, but it's closed to people now. So you can only get in, yeah, through this like little passageway they've made. And they're not you're not talking about the emotional landslide like Stevie Nicks is talking about. I was actually oh. talking about that. Yeah. Wow. There is a lot of emotions in here. Mm-hmm. Time is restricted. I think they can only go in an hour at a time. Every time they go down, they go down a few times. Yeah, because there are some areas, that maybe not the whole cave, but like there's like radon and CO2 leaking yeah. out. So not only do they not want people just hanging out in there, it could also kill you yeah, eventually. Yeah, it could be dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. And there's not much space to get like a clear shot without someone being in the way. It does get managed at some point. You can tell the cameras have to kind of zoom in a little bit. You go, they go into an, the initial entrance, and the first sign that they see of human artistry are red dots scattered on this specific rock. And these are not like the laser beam lights from like cat toys, right? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the first cat toy laser beam was discovered <laughs> in this cave. They talk about the first true painting that they end up finding seemed to be in a point where. When the entrance uh, was still open, uh, there must have been some light here. So they put the paintings really in the complete dark. Like a painting in the dark! (laughs) You're an artist, Bobby. Can you imagine doing your artwork by torchlight? Yeah, I I think I might prefer it. And the embers falling down on my paper. Gosh, I, I guess now I'm a... I'm a I'm a mic artist, as they say. Oh, okay. I'm spit mad shit on this microphone. Are you an MC? I'm a doxy. A <laughs> doxy. Hey, there we go. There's drawings of horses and mammoths, and at the base of that wall, where a lot of the drawings are, is a hole. Rainwater, if it accumulates enough, will go through this hole, and they suspect that the the importance of that contributes to the location of the paintings mm, over yeah. the hole, and. They talk about something, this was very interesting, Werner pointed this out, how a lot of the representations of the animals show representations of movement. Like you got like a rhinoceros, right? And you got the horn and you see like layers, like there's multiple horns, like a cartoon representation of like movement or shaking. And some of the animals show like multiple legs and that as if to show representation of like a, maybe a stampeding animal. Yeah. And then like you you can imagine in the firelight as it's flickering, like on the these drawings on a textured wall, it actually looks like it's moving. Yeah, which is really cool to think of. They kind of tried to mimic that in the film, like with like kind of their flickering lights and things, um, to sort of show what that might look like. Yeah, and it's yeah. really interesting. You know, with these drawings, particularly a lot, especially some of these fully formed drawings of horses and bears and panthers, I'm not just kind of like throwing this out there because this is like ancient shit that's interesting. These are good drawings. Yeah, totally. These are very, like, if you think about, uh, you know, I kind of, when I was growing up, I wanted to be a cartoonist. And uh, so developing that style. And if, like, just sitting down to draw a horse without having to practice something like that, very challenging. It's very challenging to nail that form right. I think when people draw humans, they can get pretty close because of how instinctively you might 
know a little bit about your own movements and stuff. But say you've never drawn a horse before. Sit down and try to draw one. They're notoriously complicated to draw. And this mm. person has drawn a lot of herd animals, not carrying a photograph or anything. It's just that the these animals are so inundated in the life of Paleolithic people that this person had a genuine artistic capability that definitely set them out apart from the people that they were with. But it's also noted that some of these drawings could be more than 5,000 years apart from each other. Yeah, yeah. So like you could have like a, a horse on one panel and then right next to it or kind of overlaying it could be a rhinoceros or something else. And yeah, they're, they're assuming that those are thousands of years apart. And sometimes you'll see like a cave bear claw right through it. They're seeing all this incredible timeline of these things. They show this laser map graph thing of the cave they've that was cool man france takes this cave very seriously mm -hmm. and they well, have, why why wouldn't they they've, I mean, they've literally mapped out every millimeter of this cave in its entirety using these laser scanners yeah and we discover later they have a long-term goal of doing a complete recreation of the cave where people can kind of maybe play more in in it and stuff because in this cave you go in here and there's parts where it's like you don't step past here and you can only see parts of certain drawings. Mm -hmm. We meet a guy, his name is Julian Monty. He's Love him. We are working uh, to create new understanding of the cave through that precision, through uh, scientific methods, but that's not, I think, the, the main goal. The main goal is to create uh, stories about what could have happened in that cave at, during the past. And Werner, who uh, who's uh, really really wants to talk about dreams a lot? Yeah, it is like you are creating the phone directory of Manhattan for a million precise entries. But uh, do they dream? Do they cry at night? What are their hopes? What are their families? You will never know from the phone directory. Julian also we discover is a former juggler. I have my own background. So what is the, your background, if I may ask? Well, I, I used to be a circus man before, but I switched to archaeology. Circus? And, doing what? Lion uh, tamer? Well, mostly not lion tamer, but uh, mostly unicycle and juggling, yeah. Circus guy turned uh, archaeologist. He was so inundated with this and, his and so infected his imagination that he had to like step away for a while to let this whole thing process the the reality and the breadth of what he was witnessing here. Uh, it's important. I think they state that like the earliest known drawings we've known up to this point are only half the age that they estimate that these drawings are. Yep. One of the guides going in <laughs> uh, requests silence. Uh, uh, sorry, s silence, please. Please don't move. We're going to listen to the silence in the cave and perhaps we can even hear our own heartbeats. A lot of this is just about how intensely and inherently the French people respect the aesthetic natures of everything. If you look at uh, French architecture, even like the um, the guards going into like transits and subways and stuff, mm. like the small things that you see represented on basic fences seems to have like an extra layer to it. Just the French are all about that shit. So the guide is like, perhaps we can hear our own heartbeats. <laughs> and then we get like a cool 
interesting shots of skeletal remains. So after that moment, we hear silence and like crews, crew members just kind of taking this whole thing in. Then we meet a dude. His name is Jean-Michel Genest. He's a researcher for the cave. The cave is near this large arch. I can't, is this like a Roman era arch? Do you remember what they said about this arch? I just know that it's called the Pond d'Arc, which is like the arch point maybe or something. I don't, I don't know. But I thought they, I kept thinking they were saying Pole d'Arc, yeah. like the British procedural TV show. But it was Pond d'Arc. I know in southern France, there's a lot of structures reminiscent of uh, the of the ancient Roman era. I know there's like an ancient aqueduct that kind of functions like a bridge in southern France. I've always wanted to see this shit. This is oh, why yeah. there there is so many interesting kind of remnants of ancient history there in, in southern France. And obviously like in Paris and areas like that as well. Very old city, but... I want to see those old aqueducts. Maybe. I do too. Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm into it. So I can kind of understand like their reverence. Kind of understand. I totally understand the reverence with which they treat all of this. You know, it's just so incredible that it's so preserved. Even this arch, which I'm not sure um, if on dark is like the like geological term for it, or if that's the name of these this specific arch. All these things, yeah, are just so pristinely preserved, and um, yeah, it'd be incredible to see in person. And Jean-Michel discusses how in the Paleolithic era, this region had a lot more carnivores than there was now. And it was covered in glaciers. I don't know if you said that, but that's that's interesting. Gosh, you know, in terms of the, the types of climate differences that they discuss here, when you think about how things are now, 32,000 years doesn't seem that long ago. It just because it just takes so much time for climates to change in such a way and uh but but the but carnivores and humanity lived side by side Mm -hmm. early humans and they also talk about how like there were more accessible land bridges between there and getting to germany but he makes an interesting point when you look with a flame, with a moving light, you can imagine people dancing with the shadows. Fred Astaire. Fred Astaire. Yes. I think that this image, dancing with this shadow, is a very strong and old image of human representation. Because the first representation was the wall, the white wall and the black shadow. The idea of that being the initial human representation, like a naturally made art form, I can imagine that the next step is just picking up, you know, some some clay or some chalk or something and just then recreating your own shadows. Yeah, and they kind of did a, a thing about how the firelight and the flickering may have like inspired dancing and then they they sh- they showed like a clip of uh fred astaire in swing time where he's dancing in front of like these really tall like shadows of himself on like a backdrop yeah which is awesome i love fred astaire i love dancing a person sees their their themselves their shadow in the wall they dance with it presence of humans in the cave was fleeting like shadows. 
Werner just so desperately wants to know if this is the cradle of human consciousness and the sense of where spirit and arts began to come alive. It just exploded out of this person. It's hard to say. There might even be more ancient cave drawings that have occurred. It's just that maybe the climate didn't allow these things to be preserved in other places as well as it happened here. Or they just haven't been discovered yet. Yes, too. It almost seems like, uh, if you think about how easily this area is sealed, it almost seems like a dumb accident that everything was so preserved the way it was. We record here in Nashville and just north of us, across the Kentucky border, up in the Bowling Green area, we have Mammoth Cave. Ooh, yeah. Have you been to Mammoth Cave? Yeah, a few times. I'm a big fan of it. Yeah. In fact, I have a fun story. Can I tell a fun story? Please. Okay. So after you tell the fun story, you have to tell an unfun story. Well, you got it. All right. So this is kind of unfun and fun all at the same time. Oh, great. The last time I went, I was going on like a two or three hour tour. Three hour tour. Right. Um, And I started getting worried. I was like, what what do people do if they had to go to the bathroom in a cave? So I went and asked the front desk. Just that. Like, what do you do? Like, if someone has to go to the bathroom. And she said, well, the, the tour guides carry convenience bags under their hats so that you can go pee into yeah. a bag or poop into a bag. Interesting. Then you carry it out like a goldfish. Nice. Like, and I went, like, you know, I mean, there's obviously not trees down there. You can't, like, crouch behind a tree. What do you do? You're like in a, in a tour group of, like, 50, 100 people. <laughs> you just go step off the path, barely do your thing. I don't know. So wow. anyway. Now you all know what you do if you have to use the bathroom. Did you go? I did not. Oh, no, okay. no. I, I stopped drinking water. Been in there. <laughs> At least we know there's a something for you. I heard uh, some tour guides put the convenience bag back under their hat. <laughs> Afterwards, yeah. Well, yeah, that would be like the the nice thing to do. They got fired though. Mm. 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 They were a little too, <laughs> <laughs> too eager to to too help. Too eager. Ooh, can I get that? <laughs> Let me hold that for you. Um, keep that warm. Last time I was in Mammoth Cave, they told a story about, because the, the climate in Mammoth Cave, it's like one of the largest underground caves in the world. Yeah. I can't remember if it's the largest or if there's one in Mexico that's larger. I forget. But if it's if Mammoth Cave is not the first, then there's this one in Mexico that is. But they talked about how for years of doing tours of this cave, I forget when this occurred, but one year they were doing some things in the cave and they discovered on a ledge that there was a, a fairly well-preserved body <gasps> of of an indigenous man that was probably that went back thousands of years. Whoa! That was just had been sitting there in this area, and no one had looked in that exact area. Wow! It seemed maybe unremarkable, but if you went up and looked at an angle, you're like, "Holy shit!" There's like a person up here. So they had discovered this. So imagine years and years of doing tours throughout Mammoth Cave, and people are walking by like the ancient remains of something that is actually fairly well preserved due to the climate of the cave. Yeah. Wow. Pretty cool. Mammoth Cave. I highly recommend it. Yeah. Take you a trip. I wonder how many undiscovered bags of poop there are sitting on, (laughs) sitting on ledges or just around calcified or whatever. (laughs) Probably more than (laughs) we'd care to admit. Mm -hmm. There also was, as we mentioned, bears in France at this time, the cave bear, the long extinct cave bear. There used to be more bears in Europe other than, well, I think there's some in Western Europe, you know, like your Russian grizzlies and all that shit. And we meet um, Michel Philippe. He's a paleontologist. And he talks about how the bones may have gotten there that we see. Maybe some of them were washed there. Maybe they were brought there. 
by uh, bears or hyenas. There are there are like species of hyenas yeah. in this area. And scientists, they in this nearby sportsplex, as <laughs> Werner described. All the scientists are lodged in a nearby sports complex. They all gather here, and they're not allowed to touch the markings. No. It seemed like people were so close to some of the markings. I was like, what if that guy trips and his wet face like slaps <laughs> against the wall? Smears against smears all the drawing. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and the galloping the horse just looks like a smudge ball. <laughs> and they talk about how they measure through photography what the markings are and when when they happen. And they try to, like you said before, with the bear scratches, they are able to identify when that bear scratch happened, or at least in the order of things in which certain markings occurred, based on how things are calcified or or have gathered whatever geological shit over the years. And the overlapping drawings, of course, represent different eras, possibly thousands of years after the fact of certain drawings of people coming back and drawing again. It seemed like there was a specific south of France Paleolithic style and to us, like, well, to me anyway, looking at it, I would not have been able to look at it and be like, oh, yeah, that's several different artists doing doing this wall. It just all looked like one piece, you know. So it, it was cool that they can sort of pick that out in that way and, like, really determine how far apart these things were created. We speak to the archaeologists, forgot their last names, but they were Valerie and Dominique. And they do really impressive work in understanding, like, how these came we go back to the red dots that they saw near the beginning of the cave. They're actually palm prints. And they mm. discovered they were created by one man. And they one see... One person. Yeah, one person. And they see that this person had a... Crooked little yeah. finger. Crooked little finger. And that this person was actually probably quite tall, especially for that era. Yeah, like six feet tall, I think they said. But for that era to be that tall, that's pretty... As far as we understand things... Seems to be pretty unique. Yeah. Yeah. I think that they were kind of implying that too, for sure. And what was cool is that, so you could see this person's crooked little finger all throughout the cave, like even into like the deeper parts. It's just really cool to imagine that they just, you know, kind of had a hand (laughs) in in everything. Nailed it. I know. Crushed it. it. I I tried. I don't know. Um, I practiced (laughs) that one. So the, the, the person's who's kind of, who's kind of telling us about this, they have an assistant. So the reason I kind of, emphasized person was that you know she was kind of going going on about this being an individual who was a prolific artist inside the cave and then she started saying he and calling calling him a man and the assistant was like no you know person because we don't you know, kind of implying we don't really know if it was a female or a male i know valerie and dominique they point to the ground and they're like oh that's a vertebrae coated in calcite and uh, they point out this concrete growth that I guess there's been some erosion in these concrete, it looks like concrete wavy lines. It looks like stone currents on the base yeah. of the cave. And that's a natural formation. And to look at all these stalagmites and stalactites and, and sparkly stalagmites, it's... Yeah, it was just like, it was just glittering crystals and magical, like... These like beautiful formations of like like you saw the like, kind of waves in the ground and like these like kind of drapey sheet kind of looking formations coming from the ceiling. It's just really gorgeous. They talk about these torch swipe marks and mm. that the Paleolithic people would swipe the torch against the wall to keep the flame going a little more. And they estimated that this one torch swipe probably twenty eight thousand years old. 
There's drawings of mating cave lions. Because of the mating cave lions, you could tell representations of male and female lions. And scientists were not sure if European, ancient European lions, now extinct, had manes like African lions. And with these drawings, it seems to be the implication of, no, they may have just been larger size, but they did not have manes. No manes, yeah. So this cave answered a pretty distinct biological question. There's fighting rhinos, lions growling, bison, herds of horses. What were your favorite drawings on there? The rhinos. You like the rhinos? Just like the, curva- the curvature of the horn and like, I don't, something about them just, just looked really dynamic to me. I just It just spoke to me. Maybe it was the roundness or something and like the little pointy horn. I just thought it was really um, done in a really cool way because they were like, you know, curves and like little sharp points intermingled it was really neat it was specifically in the rhinos and the horses where a lot of motion was conveyed which was very interesting were the fighting rhinos is that was that your school mascot no no it was the indians so my high school is canceled hashtag canceled replace it with the fighting rhinos (laughs) yeah that'd be great (laughs) the woolly rhinos oh we go into my favorite the chamber of lions Mm. and the lions and the panthers those are my favorite because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the way the artist, the ancient artist, represented the details of those faces, it almost showed an obsession with these specific, like a reverence to those specific creatures. Yeah. They, you notice that they had it really the eye, the eye shape, and making sure the eyes was right seemed very important to the artist. And also, there was a marking going down by the eyes. It seemed like maybe. These uh, European lions had like a stripe that kind of went like along the bridge of their nose, like Mm. down to their panther cheek. Panther cheek. And it seemed um, to me that there was, yeah, just a real respect for those specific creatures. And I felt like they came through in the artistic representation. Absolutely. Yeah. They say there's a, oh, they're in the, uh, the Chamber of Lions also, they say, has a serious level of toxic CO2 gas emanating from the roots of trees which seeps down into the cave through the porous limestone. They show the lower half of a female body, but you can't see the top half because you're not allowed to walk there. But you know what they said that top half of that woman was? What? A bison. A bison. I think because they later on show that they can, like they allow them to attach the camera to like a stick and kind of hold it out. Yeah. So that they could see see like the back side of it better. But it was really interesting because it was painted or drawn on like a hanging sort of like a pendant shaped formation. So like they use the shape of this formation to follow the curves of the woman's lower half. And they talk about similar styles to this that they found in Germany. We go back to Jean-Michel and he's at a storage space, which was an interesting space. It's yeah. like, <laughs> and turn this crank and these big shelves just separate. Yeah. And he points out other artifacts that they've discovered throughout Europe, like and representations of things that they have found. And he shows all these Venuses, these mm-hmm. like buxom female figures. And this is, these Venuses are things that have been found all over the world. Ancient representations. In a very, like very similar styles in like a very similar kind of like body shape depiction. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. They also pointed out that the vast majority of human representations and the oldest that we have find, the one called the Hulaful Venus specifically, is the oldest known. It's, uh, they're guessing it's around 40,000 years old. But most of the earliest repositions are one after the other women. 
Yeah. Women, women. And a lot of the more masculine looking representations seem to involve anthropomorphism, like they're mm-hmm. crossed with animals. And it's interesting in that case, we get a woman's figure anthropomorphized with a bison. Yeah. I guess it's easy. I guess a bison, you could get a lot from a bison. So maybe that could also represent some kind of fertile nature. And that Venus of Hylophil that they found, they found that only in 2008, I think they said. Not, that is a recent. That was only like two years before this film came out. That's, that's right. So when Werner had uh, um, talked about this, they had literally just found this. Yeah, it's like a new discovery. Yeah. And they also found uh, a Hulafil mammoth and a horse. They also talk about how I, you know, I grew up loving Indiana Jones movies, and it Who made didn't? and it made arche- it made archaeology seem adventurous. Yeah. And but in reality, if you look back, it seems that Indies and Jones is stealing uh, things from and <laughs> from native <laughs> tribes and sticking them in museums. Does it belong in a museum? It may not, but. Modern archaeology is actually very high tech, and it involves like a lot of patience and a lot of nerds. A lot of nerds. Nerds are very important. Yeah, I thought that was cool. They were kind of talking about how you would imagine archaeology to be like, you know, shovels and brushing away sand or dirt from from artifacts. But really, yeah, it's like sophisticated technology helping to identify the time frame from when these artifacts were created or sort of imagining what they would all look like like you have pieces imagine how they would all look like together it's like this technology is kind of helping to really do all that much in a much easier way we meet one of the weirder figures in this <gasps> film name Wolf- is wolf Hine. i love wolf Hine. Uh, people lived here about 30 40 000 years back in time and in that time it was very cold here because the alp mountains were covered by a glacier about uh, 2500 meters thick and in the valley down there, reindeer and mammoths were passing, and it was very cold. And that's uh, the reason why I'm dressed up like an Inuit. He's so cool. And Wolfheim, he's weird, but cool. He is described as an experimental archaeologist. archaeologist. What, what the fuck does that mean? Well, when you see Wolfheim, <laughs> and he points this out, he's dressed in the cloth that Paleolithic man may have been dressed in. Wolf is a historical LARPer. That's right. I wonder if he has to roll initiative <laughs> to put on his uh, skins. He rolls high in charisma. Astonishing on this flute is that, is, the, uh, that it is pentatonic. And this is uh, the same tonality we are used to here today. And if you like, I'll try to play some small tunes for you. I thought he was very charming. You know, he was obviously very passionate about what he was doing. And what else does he do for us? Uh, He rocks the bone flute, and you quickly realize that is made of bone, I believe, right? It's from the radius of a vulture. Right. Which is like, how metal is that? Pretty damn metal. Yeah. Uh, But he rocks the bone flute, and you realize he's actually pushing his demo, I believe, at this point. (laughs) His his, uh, cover of the Star Spangled Banner. Yeah, he nails it. He was pretty proud of that. Sounds a little bit like Star Spangled Banner. 
I loved him. I thought he was. I thought he was fabulous. They get a master perfumer named <gasps> Maurice Morin to do smells of the cave. He talks about how a lot of the scents that he smells within the cave seem kind of fresh, like they don't seem like something that has been around like forever. Things are just so well preserved in this cave, and um, there are. And they also point out that the slag might slide the, the white crystal formations, the things that. Make this cave look like another planet. The original cave drawer artists, they didn't even see these. These formed after a landslide, an emotional landslide, (laughs) blocked off the entrance, sealed the cave off. And then over the course of thousands and thousands of years, these geological structures have formed. It was just like a regular cave back then that people just walked in and out of. So we're seeing this whole environment. We're seeing the formations we're seeing the drawings and you know now we kind of know especially the original artists all they had was just their original drawings and then later came more drawings later came more cave bear claw art later came all these fantastic slide slagmite formations yeah it's just so we're getting to see kind of the whole picture as it is now and they were only seeing you know their own small sort of world back then which was not small, but, you know, they're just not right. seeing everything that we're seeing. Fascinating. Fascinating. Oh, I also want to go back and say the perfumey guy. Yeah. Um, I think they said that they're building a... Did you did you mention this? They're building like a recreation, yes. like a music park kind of thing? Yeah, they're going for that. And he's going to be in charge of creating like the, the smells. Yeah. The odors. You can still smell <laughs> the cave bear farts. <laughs> Burner points out... In the forbidden recess of the cave... There's a footprint of an eight-year-old boy next to the footprint of a wolf. Did a hungry wolf stalk the boy? Or did they walk together as friends? Or were their tracks made thousands of years apart? We'll never know. What's up with this? What's up with that? Were they buddies? Homies? Enemies? Or did they even exist at the same time? Did yeah. one become come before the other? Yeah, it's we don't even impossible know. to know. We'll never know. But Werner also points out, and he says that the explorers felt the same way, that being in this cave was a little awkward. Dwarfed by these large chambers, illuminated by our wandering lights, sometimes we were overcome by a strange, irrational sensation, as if we were disturbing the Paleolithic people in their work. It felt like eyes upon us. It was a relief to surface again above ground. Jean, <laughs> this is one of my favorite parts. Jean Michel talks about Paleolithic hunting. <laughs> this is fun. And he's got this thing, a gnarly looking weapon called the Bone Point Shaft. It looks very deadly and uh, sturdy. But he's got something that I've never heard of. Nothing that ever is represented uh, when you see like caveman, cavemen in movies. But a spear thrower, a, yeah. a little device that has like a knob, like a hook on it that you put a spear on to give you more force and more air when you throw it. And Jean-Michel attempts to show Werner how this does. <laughs> His efforts may not look very convincing, but this is a powerful weapon. I get the vibe that Werner's uh, a little disappointed that it, that <laughs> Jean-Michel didn't just Flick one that went straight into a tree, like halfway through. The uh, Paleolithic men was better than you, I guess. 
Oh, I suspect. John Michelle begins to walk over to go get the spears, <laughs> and Bernard's like, "Stay here, stay here." Yeah, don't bother. Just don't bother. Stay here. <laughs> stay here. Unfortunately, um, due to the constant accessibility, they said that mold is starting to grow inside the cave. It's bad. News. People's moldy mouths. They're God, breath. breathing. Yeah. Stop breathing when you go in the fucking cave, for Christ's sake. And the opportunity to be inside is fading fast and but they discuss like the spiritual nature of it and uh this guy he talks about how like homo sapiens what is that term did you write that down what what homo sapien meant and how it seems i think the gist of it was because because Werner asked what does it what does humanism mean or what does it mean to be human and humans have been described in many ways right and for a while it was homo sapiens and he's still called Homo sapiens, the man who knows. I don't think it's a good definition at all. We don't know, we don't know much. I, I would think Homo spiritualis. And then they point to a bear skull that's been placed on a rock, was placed there thousands and thousands of years ago. No one has touched it. There seem to be charcoal fragments surrounding it, suggesting like an incense kind of thing, but that this skull placed specifically on this rock had some kind of um, totemic value to it, I suppose, a spiritual value to it. And Julian, he talks, he tells a story, Julian, our circus boy. Yeah. In North Australia, for example, uh, in the 1970s, an ethnographer was on the field with an Aborigine who was his informer. And once they arrived in a rock shelter, and in that rock shelter there were some beautiful paintings, but they were decaying. And the Aborigine started to become sad because he saw the paintings decaying. And in that region, there is a tradition of touching up the paintings uh, time after time. So he sat and he started to touch up the paintings. So the ethnographer asked, the question that every Western person would have asked, why are you painting? And the man answered, and his answer is very uh, uh, troubling because he answered, I am not, I am not painting. That's the ant, only hand spirit who is actually painting now. The hand of a spirit. Yeah, because the man is a part of the spirit but yeah what constitutes humanness what is it we get this part that says postscript and on the rhone river there's a nuclear power plant the biggest in all of france and it's 20 miles from the cave it points out that the warm water that's used to cool the reactors led to a tropical biosphere yeah and this warm water runoff from this nuclear plant has been diverted to like a half a mile or something away from the cave entrance, right? Or something like that? Something like that, yeah. So it's, so it's real close at this point. And, there, and there's an area in France where Werner points out that they have, it's a tropical environment. And Werner points out that they have crocodiles. Crocodiles have been introduced into this brooding jungle and warmed by water to cool the reactor. Man, do they thrive. There are already hundreds of them. And he points out the uh, albino alligators or crocs. They look like alligators. Not surprisingly, 
mutant albinos swim and breed in these waters. Just dump them there? Yeah, they brought well, they brought them in specifically to this environment. I don't know if they explained why they did it, but they did, and then they started because of just because of the you know, the warmth and everything else, like they're just like multiplying like crazy. Yeah. And uh, but Werner asked. Fairly soon these albinos might reach Ovi Cave. Looking at the paintings, what will they make of them? It's a good question. Maybe we'll, we can interview them later. Yeah, they probably eat that bear skull or something. I think Werner should do a documentary on how the natural world reacts to things like nuclear power plants and stuff like that. That actually sounds like a very ripe for Herzog oh, yeah. kind of thing. I think that's just right around the corner. So I have two, two quotes. Like He kind of spent a long time at the end focusing on these albino crocodiles. He has two in the water. That like you see them underwater and it it does almost look like they are like it's like a mirror image of each other. And he says Do they really meet? Or is it just their own imaginary mirror reflection? <laughs> and then it pans up in the water and you can see it's actually two of them like kind of looking at each other. And then he says Are we today possibly the crocodiles who look back into an abyss of time when we see the paintings of Chauvet Cave? Are we the crocodiles, Bobby? Are we? Are we the crocodiles? Are we? That is the question. Man, we'll never. Will we ever know if we're the crocodiles, truly? We'll never know. If we say we're the crocodiles, we can be the crocodiles. I want to be a giant sloth. Bring... <laughs> I, want, I, I want you to be a giant sloth. Can we just bring back the giant sloth? Do everything in our power. We're supposed to be cross, doing a cross genetic thing to try to bring, bring back the woolly mammoth. I'm 100% for it. Bring Jurassic Park. Bring back the woolly mammoth, please. And the giant sloth. And the woolly rhino. Yeah, woolly rhino too. Is his horn woolly too? I want to know. That's a good question. I would like for you to draw, Bobby, a picture of a woolly rhino. (laughs) A horn, a herstute rhino. Uh, (laughs) The horn is often just like a hardened hair mass, right? Essentially, like the same kind of substance. Sure, yeah. It's like a big, hard hunk of hair. (laughs) You're a big, hard hunk of hair. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and that's that film yeah the soundtrack can be found on amazon the soundtrack was very enjoyable i thought like you know in typical Werner herzog style just very like moody and it's a really nice compliment to this film i think ginger we don't rate documentaries in a star rating scale nope i'm sure ancient people looked up into the sky seeing the stars and thought to themselves I wish those were actually the heads of a German man who would be born in the 20th century. We rate them in those, the Herzog rating scale. You can give this one through five Herzogs. I'm going to give it one through five Herzogs. Combine them like uh, like ancient man in a piece of charcoal making an image for best out of 10. I learned so much watching this. It's very educational. I loved being educated. We didn't really mention it because it's hard to kind of convey it but there are scenes some of my favorite parts in this movie are just silent shots mm-hmm. of the wall of the images i imagine that looked really cool when you were seeing it in the theater those are my favorite parts i was kind of actually hoping for maybe a little more of that it could have been a little more of that for me and but it's a beautiful film you got to understand how Werner was very limited in what he was able to do in here 
he had a four man crew. So they all had to do all the camera testing and people had to do like the jobs of three or four people essentially. And it was so hard to get nice angles in a proper amount of time to get what you needed without having to shoot through someone's head in a frame or something like that. It was challenging, but he managed to capture something beautifully and he captured the human connection of the archeologists and geologists and many professions that have come together to study and understand this cave. So this rating has got to be pretty high just for the education factor, because what he does capture is unprecedented up to that point. My only complaint is maybe like Werner does have a habit of projecting pretty hard. It can be a little cheesy. We love Werner around here. He gets away with doing things that we often criticize other directors for doing because he's Werner and his personality just looms so large. But it was almost just kind of silly, some of the ways that he projected. But in a way, it also kind of made it all a little more fun at the same time. You kind of roll your eyes a little bit, but you kind of go with it at the same time. Mm -hmm. But I think for me, the education factor alone propels it over a three. I'm going to give this a 3.75. I agree with the things you said. Um, and I will mention, you know, you said that, that more you wanted more shots of the cave, of the drawings and things. They do kind of at the end, like, you know, they kind of run through it in the beginning, then they'll, they revisit it at the end where they kind of spend a little bit more time on the shots of the drawings. But I agree. I could have done with some more. But- and, and it might seem weird to say because anyone who watches is like, what are you talking about? There was tons of them, but like just... Very quiet, reverential shots. Yeah, yeah, it's really, it's it's really nice. Um, I really loved like the all the interviews of the scientists and the enthusiasts and everybody that was involved with the project. Um, the soundtrack kind of really made it a more special experience to me. Maybe because I did watch it in the theater in 3D. I just really, really love this film. Um, and I think I'm going to give it a 4.75. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh. That's pretty groovy. You take your 4.75, combine it with my 3.75. That makes it. How many woolly mammoths are we going to give this one? That's eight and a half, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Yes. It is eight and a half out of 10 Herzogs. A very nice score for Werner's Cave of Forgotten Dreams. It is Forgotten Dreams. We'll never know. If you're into human anthropology, uh, archaeology, geology, uh, history, ancient history in general, yo, hit this shit up. Yo, hit it. And if you like caves, I mean, obviously a film about a cave does not come close about being in a cave. You know, the experience is obviously totally different. But I think they do a really good job of capturing the beauty and the environment Mm -hmm. of the cave itself. Wouldn't it be funny if the initial explorers who went into this cave walked in, they saw the drawings and were like, and saw it for what it truly was, graffiti, (laughs) and proceeded to scrub the images off the wall. You know what? That may have happened. We'll never know. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, quick side story. In Philadelphia, the musician, I don't know if you've heard of him, Kurt Vile, he's like a Mm -hmm. rocky folk musician. He was promoting a new album and he got this graffiti artist to paint the the side building in Philadelphia, where he's from, to promote his new album. And some guy who was fed up with the graffiti in town and didn't know that this was a sanctioned piece went over with a roller and started, like, white painting over the imagery 
And, uh, well, it came back on the guy that he was ruining, like, a sanctioned piece of art. Jerk. He felt pretty dumb. I bet he did. Dumb. Let's not let him near this cave then. I'm a little angry. Roller. I'm a little pissed at the at the ancient person that drew a, a, a bison over the old bison. Yeah, what's up with that? Obviously tagging your own <laughs> shit. You don't think that bison's drawn well enough? Jeez. Watch this. Eight and a half out of ten. And that's that film, Cave of Forget- Forgettable Dreams. <laughs> Ginger, thank you. Thank you, Bobby. This is great. And, uh, uh, keep on talking. Oh my God, why are you doing that? We'll never know.